Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Popcorn, a pop culture podcast that has to do with books, movies, and music. Today is Friday, March 20th, 2020. I've been talking about Stephen King's book, The Stand, for the past few weeks, and I'd like to continue that this week, but I wanted to talk about something else briefly before I start. It appears as though the thing that's been the most on people's minds this week is coronavirus. Surprise! And the thing that's been in the forefront for fans of The Stand is the similarity between coronavirus and the super flu. In fact, someone asked me recently whether or not I was starting to feel like a character in the book. Yeah, we may have reason to feel fearful. Coronavirus is a serious thing. And I think it's important to remember this. The fact that coronavirus is highly contagious is about the only thing that it has in common with the superflu. With superflu, 100% of the people who contracted it died, with one notable exception, and about 99% of the population contracted it. Only one person in the entire novel who contracted the disease survived it, Peter Goldsmith Redman. And the only reason he survived was because he was the offspring of one immune parent and one non-immune parent, as the speculation goes anyways by doctors in the book. So while the similarities seem to be there at first glance, they are really superficial, and there's no real concrete basis for comparison between Captain Trips and COVID-19. Now there are of course some valuable lessons to be taken from the book regarding survival in a drastically changing world, but here's something I was thinking about yesterday morning as I was walking the dog. I was thinking about the breakdown of infrastructure and the rule of law, which are themes that King explores, if somewhat indirectly, during the novel. In at least two separate incidents, he shows what happens when people are left to their own devices with no promise of protection from the police, the courts, or the military. Frankly, it's terrifying to see what he thinks will happen. It's particularly frightening to see his description of the breakdown of those authorities in a series of what appear to have been coded high-frequency transmissions from military officers in New York and Arkansas to the Project Blue Commander in Las Vegas. We see struggles between soldiers and civilians that end badly. Civilians die, but what's more unnerving to see is that soldiers also die, sometimes at the hands of other soldiers. A squad of soldiers breaks into a radio station where a broadcaster is playing and announcing information regarding the current state of affairs as it actually appears to be, not just as the government wants people to see it. One of the members of the squad murders the broadcaster in the booth, but is promptly afterwards executed by his own men, a familiar scenario that King also uses in a later novel, Hearts in Atlantis. Now all of these things are presented as a part of a larger scenario depicting the breakdown of the rule of law, and I was thinking that there might be some people out there right now in the wake of the COVID-19 situation who are picturing a similar breakdown. My advice to those people picturing such a breakdown is this. Stop that. Right now. There are several reasons why I'm speaking adamantly about this. The first is that such a mentality feeds upon itself, and if people begin to picture it happening, the steps toward it actually happening become shorter and shorter, and it becomes more and more likely to actually happen. Conversely, if we behave like conscientious and respectful human beings, we'll be more easily able to make it through this business without too much lasting difficulty. The second reason is because of something a little grimmer and maybe not quite so optimistic, and that's this. If things get worse, eventually the breakdown of the rule of law is almost certain to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. 
But make no mistake, we are far from reaching that point now. And things would have to get much, much worse in order to get there. And there is every indication that things will absolutely not get that bad. So, to the people out there who are having dark fantasies about the purge and looting and pillaging without consequence, you can forget it. If you start engaging in that kind of behavior, you're going to be caught and you're going to be punished. We are still civilized people. Our habit of gouging others by reselling overpriced toilet paper notwithstanding, we are simply not going there. Okay. Things got a little darker than I had intended there for a bit, and I apologize for that. But as a number of people have indicated these past few weeks, we are in some strange times indeed. So let's get a little lighter. In today's episode, we're going to talk about Stu and Franny. And we will hopefully also have time to get to a different kind of a question than those we've been talking about over the last few weeks. King's description of the stand as what he calls a long tale of dark Christianity. So first of all, the question, what should we think of Stu Redman as a character? Now personally, I think of Stu as more of an archetypal character than some of the others in the story, which some people might find surprising. The truth is that, admirable though he may be, there's really not much to Stu as a character. This may be hard to recognize, because the few character traits that we do know about Stu are mostly positive. As a young man, he sacrificed his own future for the sake of his family. He ended up dropping out of high school so that he could support his younger brother after his mother died. At the beginning of the story, we hear Stu's character traits referred to in positive terms, King says that Vic Palfrey had once paid him the ultimate compliment of calling him old-time tough. He's also often painted in extremely sympathetic terms, such as when King refers to his brief marriage and his wife's untimely death, all before the start of the book. This is a type of what I think of as sort of retroactive exposition. The author explains character-defining details after they've taken place when the actual time frame for these details is before the beginning of the story. Just as a point of interest, and in case anyone missed this detail, King does mention something about Stu's wife, a character so inconsequential that she, he doesn't even give her a name, and who in fact only gets mentioned one or two other places in the story, that actually escaped me the first few times I read the book. He says, The womb of his young wife had borne a single dark and malignant child took me some time to realize that he's actually referring to the uterine cancer that eventually claimed her life. So, we are meant to empathize with Stu and to admire him as a character. Sometimes he does things that amuse us, like in Stovington when he deliberately starts coughing and scares the crap out of Dietz. Sometimes he does things that are incredibly brave, like when he breaks his leg on the way to Vegas and convinces the rest of the men to go on without him. But always he is steadfast, he is faithful, and he is trustworthy. In fact, he's almost too good to be true. But we admire him anyways for the same reason that we idolize pop culture heroes like Superman. Because he is all the good things we wish we could be. Stu Redman is the true hero of the story, which King himself refers to as a long tale of dark Christianity. Probably the only negative attribute of Stu as a character is that he is too fair and too trusting. When he and Harold get into a confrontation over Franny, 
Harold would never have been content to let the better man win, but Stu has absolutely no difficulty being perfectly chivalrous about the whole thing. Of course, there is an argument to be made that that particular conversation took place technically before Stu fell in love with Franny. More about that in a moment. But one does get the impression that the result would have been the same either way. And speaking of Franny, what are we to make of her as a character? Fran Goldsmith. She's too good to be true, too, but that doesn't stop me from really loving her as a character. In fact, she even has some foibles that make her more real as a character than Stu. She harbors no real ill will toward Harold, although she does eventually unwittingly put herself in danger when her true feelings are accidentally revealed to him. But she does her best to act with grace and compassion regarding Harold, trying hard to treat him well in spite of those negative feelings. This is one of the most telling things about her and about any character, that she can find it within herself to treat him in a kindly fashion, even when she isn't disposed to do so. Anyone could say of Franny that she would have every reason to dislike Harold and be generally disgusted with him, but she is too mature to allow those feelings to get in the way of treating him with a measure of basic human goodness that which each person deserves, not necessarily by virtue of the things that they have done or accomplished, but simply because they are human. As for foibles, she has a certain something in her character that I've always genuinely admired. Stu sometimes looks at her in times of stress and sees a line between her eyes, something he refers to as the I want line. She can be gentle and sweet, but she's also unyielding when it comes to something she wants. Stu admires this, too, I think. It's a part of her that he eventually falls in love with. The I want characteristic is something that other people see in her, not something she sees in herself. This becomes obvious during the part of the story when she and Harold are traveling together, when she first meets Stu and some of the other characters by virtue of a curious kind of a plot device, a glimpse into her diary. The concept of a diary becomes the catalyst for a number of different plot lines in the course of the story, especially once Harold starts a diary of his own. So what are we to think about Stu and Franny as a couple? Now, I personally love these guys, and I think we're meant to love them. I like to think of them in a sort of old-fashioned way. Things have been going terribly wrong in the world for both of them, and then they find each other. I've always thought of them as a bit of a, a May-December couple. She's fairly young. He's been married once before and is apparently a bit older. There isn't that much of a courtship period between them, but he is good enough to at least try to make sure that he isn't stepping on Harold's toes when he does begin courting her. And there's something electric about the beginning of their relationship, especially after Stu tells Harold that he isn't interested in her. Harold, of course, takes this a little bit the wrong way, and then later when Franny makes it clear to Harold that she isn't interested in him, he whines petulantly that Stu said that he could, quote, have her, as though she is an object to be possessed, which it should go without saying, she is not. The part that I love the best about the beginning of the relationship between Stu and Franny is that discussion between Harold and Stu about how Stu doesn't want to cut in doesn't want to take Franny away from Harold, but then Stu starts taking a closer look at how pretty Franny is and how he admires the way she acts and speaks. And that section of the book ends with the line, and that was the beginning of his knowing that he did want her, after all. 
Let's shift gears a little bit. There was something else I wanted to talk about this week, a question that holds particular interest for myself as a Christian, as a fan of King's work in general, and really somebody who is both of those things. That question is, what are we to make of the fact that King refers to this tale, as I've mentioned a number of times already, as a long tale of dark Christianity? I've been thinking about this a lot, and I'm not sure I'm 100% clear about how I feel about it. Truth is, I can't really figure it out. I mean, I think I know what he thinks he means, my first impression when I read the line, which is included in his preface to the 1990 edition, was that he was referring to the book in the sense of it being a classic tale of good versus evil, and I admit I was a little disappointed that he called it that. I thought better of him. It smacked of a certain type of poor understanding of Christian faith, in which any struggle between good and evil is seen as some kind of intentional reflection of Christianity, in which I've always thought of as unnecessarily oversimplistic. Christianity isn't, after all, first and last about the general struggle between good and evil. If that were true, then one could conceivably characterize just about any story as a tale reflecting some version of Christianity. Hansel and Gretel the witch is the devil. Hansel is Jesus, who saves his sister from eternal damnation. The little engine that could. The hill is sin. The train is actually the engineer of his own salvation. He pulls himself up and over the hill. You can see how the theology becomes a little muddled after a while. What kind of bothers me about the whole thing is that Stephen King, whatever else you might think about him and his writing, is a pretty smart guy. He may not always do the best research in the world, but it's a sure bet he's able to do some research. So I think it's safe to say that he has a pretty good idea of what the basic tenets of Christianity are, even if he doesn't necessarily subscribe to them himself. Does his, quote, dark Christianity include any doctrine or provision of salvation? What do we expect in terms of faith from the characters? What about good works, the sacraments? The Doctrine of the Trinity, Church History, Christology. I know darn well he knows about these things because his other characters have explored some of them. Father Callahan from Salem's Lot and the Dark Tower series would have been well versed in Christian theology, and the character of David Carver in Desperation was a fascinating exploration of the development of a new convert to the Christian faith. As far as that goes, King himself claims to have been raised Methodist. So why would he have used this phrase? In an interview in 2008, King addressed this exact question by saying, I wanted to explore what that means to be able to rise above adversity by faith, because it's something most of us do every day. We may not call it Christianity. I wanted to do that. I wanted it to be a God trip. Now, King's story, The Stand, really isn't a tale of Christianity at all. And there isn't really any such thing as dark Christianity or light Christianity. He really should be calling it a God trip, but I suspect he used the former phrase because it's catchier and more eclectic. Well, I think that about sums it up for this week. I think next week we're going to talk about the dark man, Randall Flagg. 
And after that, I thought we might take a little bit of a break from Stephen King and instead talk about one of my favorite movies, which is Blade Runner. Conversation for the day, what kind of a person Dr. Eldon Tyrell really is, and unpack the subtext of the subsequent conversation between Deckard and Tyrell. It should be interesting. In the meantime, if you want to contact me, you can find me on Twitter under the username at CybernetikTiger. You can email me at sdross01 at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram with the username sdross01. Until next time, thanks for listening.